close. And I'll just interject from my own uh, kind of personal perspective. I find it weirdly refreshing, I guess, in a way that we can see God using people that are not quite perfect, don't have it all together. Also, um, I've said this before, I'll say it again, I think it's more than interesting. I think it is important that the Bible um, doesn't sugarcoat, doesn't put a shine on these heroes. I mean, you read a lot of uh, ancient literature, um, ancient peoples, and they're talking about their heroes, their saviors, and it pretty much is really, really positive. And the Bible, I, I think it's it lends to its credibility, to its authenticity, that we're reading actual factual accounts, that you get the great moments and you get the not-so-great details about some of these people as well. But the book of Judges is kind of uh, the, bo- the broken record book of the Bible. Uh, it's the book that's kind of on repeat, story after story, kind of sounds similar. Uh, the plot line stays kind of the same, even though the characters change and then the details of the crises change a little bit uh, throughout Israel's history. But God's people, uh, now installed in the book of Judges, installed on the right side of the Jordan River, installed in the promised land that God has given them. Uh, But other concerns over time begin to kind of crowd God out. Um, Daily life is happening, and they're beginning to see other nations around them and other cultures and other standards of living, and they're thinking, eh, maybe there's more than what we have. Maybe we need to look for more. Uh, and so it's, it's not like, because Israel falls into idolatry, and it's not like they like consciously choose that. Uh, it's not like they got together, let's have a meeting. Is Yahweh going to be our God, or are we going to go with Chemosh or Ashtoreth or one of the Baals. It's not like they did it like that. Um, and it's not like if you asked them, they would have said, oh yeah, we've rejected Yahweh. No, they, they added additional gods into their worship. And so I guess I would say this because I heard, you know, growing up, you know, Israel was the only monotheistic people of the ancient world. I would say if you're looking for monotheism in Israel, don't go to the book of Judges because they are hardly monotheistic. They're hardly worshiping one God in the book of Judges. In fact, as we get further and further into the story, they're, they're descending into deeper and deeper levels of idolatry, worshiping more and more different gods of surrounding nations. And they... Well, God does this. I mean, He does this with us, and He certainly does this in the book of Judges. God loves us, and part of that... You know, you, you maybe see this if you have children. Um, part of loving someone at some point involves allowing them to make their own choices. That's called respecting someone, uh, even if those choices are not great choices. And so what we see in the book of Judges is God says, okay, I mean, you want to worship this God and this God and the, this other idol over here and build this shrine here? Okay. You don't have to. To worship me. I'm not going to twist you. I'm not going to coerce you into following me. And so God allows them to worship foreign gods and allows them to experience the consequences of those choices. And I think he does that for us too. It doesn't make you worship the Lord and will allow you to experience the, the weight of those choices, the consequences of those choices. And so guess what? God's people suffer. And we see this in the book of 
judges. And I'll say something. This may sound a little controversial, but let me just, let me just tell you what I mean after I make the statement. So here's the statement. There isn't anything special about Israel compared to those other nations. I'll say that again. There is nothing inherently special about Israel compared to the surrounding nations. Um, at least not if you separate uh, their relationship to God. If you take that out of the equation, if, if they're not God's people, there's nothing really all that unique about them. Um, among the community of nations, Israel is not the greatest economic power in this time period, certainly not the greatest military power, and really not the most important cultural center or technological center of the world at that time. So again, unless you factor into the equation Israel's relationship with God, there's nothing special about them. There's really nothing that separates them from these nations that surround them. Um, so, God allows them these choices. Will they worship or will they not worship? Um, God. Now, to be clear, it's not like the other nations we read about, these, these other, you know, the Ammonites and the, the um, Midianites. It's not like these other groups we've been reading about in the book of Judges are like superpowers of the ancient world. So I don't want you to walk away going, wow, the Ammonites were really big shots and the Midianites. No, they weren't. They were small fries in the ancient world, uh, basically on the same level as, as Israel. Um, and, and in fact, these other nations, these other ites that we read about in the book of Judges have all been swept away in the dustbin of history. But Israel remained. Um, and Israel remained because of her relationship with Yahweh. So the people, this is the cycle in the book of Judges. We've seen this now throughout the first ten chapters the people have this relationship with God. God has given them this land. God has defeated these enemies through Joshua and Caleb and the leaders of the people. And um, now they begin to drift again from God and begin to worship some of the other gods. Uh, then the Lord says, okay, have it your way. I'm going to step back and allow you to experience life outside of this special relationship with me. And so they do, and they are exposed and they are attacked, and they are exploited, and they are oppressed, and I mean, they're really beaten up badly time after time by these surrounding nations. Then what happens? Well, they get, after years of this, they, they get on their knees, they kind of come to their senses, they cry out to God, and, and God hears their prayer, and God raises up a Deborah or a Gideon or a Jephthah, and God delivers his people, and this cycle just keeps happening. From chapter 1 all the way through the book, the cycle of Judges, um, faithlessness, apostasy, rebellion, suffering, and repentance. I'll put kind of brackets around repentance because um, it's unclear what level of repentance we're really watching as we go through the book of Judges. But at the same time, as we work through this book, um, while the cycle is the same, um, the rejection of God becomes more and more substantial, okay? The idolatry becomes more and more pronounced, and the leaders that come to the rescue become more and more flawed 
as we work through the book of Judges. So a few weeks ago, we started back in Judges 10. Um, This is kind of the setting for our judge Jephthah. And once again, Israel had fallen away, uh, had rebelled against God. And this time, we we read this list. It's been several weeks now, but we, we read this list in Judges chapter 10 of all of the foreign gods that Israel was worshiping. And it is the longest list we've had yet. They're worshiping everything but the kitchen sink. And then this group called the Ammonites... They show up, uh, they decide they can invade Israel. Uh, why not? Israel looks weak. And so Israel now faced with this new existential threat, they cry out to God for help. Um, they turn to God, they repent. Sort of, okay? And I say sort of because it's not like they had any other options. I mean, what else could they do? Um, if by repented we mean uh, that that repenting means you 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 ex- you exhaust all other exit strategies, uh, and finally with only one option left, uh, you pray to God. Okay, that that's repentance. I don't know that that's really repentance, though. Uh, I'm not sure that repentance would be the last word when kind of a gun is pointed to Israel's head and they're like, okay, okay, God, help us. Because they're not so much turning to God uh, for God, they're just turning to God to deal with the pain, to deal with the current situation. Judges chapter 10, verses 15 and 16, here goes, here's their cry. The Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned, do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they Okay, they got rid of the foreign gods among them, and they served the Lord. And he, God, he could bear their misery no longer. So God cannot put up with watching his people suffer anymore. And so however heartfelt or heartless their turning to God was, um, he's touched by the situation. He loves his people, and he can't bear to watch this anymore. Enter Jephthah. Okay, Jephthah. God aims to use this warrior named Jephthah to rescue his people. And this is the first judge that we have come across in the list of judges who is actually a military man, okay, who is actually a warrior. Um, God's raised up a lot of different people. Jephthah is a true blue warrior. He's got that going for him. Uh, He doesn't have a lot else going for him. Uh, From chapter 11, we learned he was a very complicated person with a very complicated history and a very complicated family situation. Uh, To start things off, among his brothers, he was the one whose mother was not a wife of the father. Okay, you tracking with me? Like they could all say, this is my mom, this is my mom. Uh, She lives here at home with dad. His mom did not live at home with dad. She was a prostitute. So he was born out of wedlock. Um, He was an illegitimate child of their father. Uh, And so growing up, they would remind him of that, and they would treat him accordingly. Um, So he, in their eyes, was dad's mistake. Jephthah was dad's mistake. So when dad died, they ran him off. And 
honestly made total sense. They didn't want him getting any part of the inheritance, any part of the lands, any part of the money, any part of the property. Um, He was illegitimate in their eyes. He was not going to get what was coming to them, legitimate sons of the father. Um, So he was run off and started this life separate from his family. Uh, And he began living as sort of a warlord. We know he had this warrior skill set. He attracted a band of, I don't know what the word would be, pirates, uh, ruffians, scoundrels, uh, a a band of kind of uh, 'er ne'er-do-wells who were up to no good, kind of looked to Jephthah as their leader, and they lived off away from everybody else. And so the story now will turn on the fact that Israel is once again gunned to the head, existential threat, things are bad, it looks like we're going to be overrun by the Ammonites, um, things look grim, and so, desperate situation, right? Desperate measures. So the people who now had rejected Jephthah are the same, who have separated themselves from Jephthah, are now the very ones who come to him and beg for his help. You see, they knew he was a warrior. They knew he had a, a certain set of skills that could be handy. And so they, 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 they ask him, they beg him, come and help us and, and deliver us with God's help from the Ammonites. And so all of a sudden, this is what's so interesting about this story. We're going to get into more detail here in a moment, but stepping away from the details, this is what is so interesting about Jephthah's story. It looks a whole lot like God's story. I mean, this story is begging for us to kind of step back and go, wait a second, this sounds like what the Israelites are doing to God, what Jephthah's family is doing to him. God was rejected by his people, by his family. God's family had separated from him. And now the situation gets so bleak, so dire, that God's people, nowhere else to turn, finally say, please help us. We're begging for your help. So Jephthah's story and God's story look very similar. Um, And I think the story here actually gives us kind of a look at the relationship between God and his people. You know, will we surrender... Will we turn to God for more than help? For more than rescue? Will we turn to God to be our Lord, to be our Father, to be our Master? Will, will we look to find our identity in Him, meaning in Him, uh, hope in Him, or will we just look for God? Hey, I'm in trouble here. Can you help? The big difference big difference. So back to the story. The people, including Jephthah's own family, uh, they come to him. I mean, how are they going to get this guy who they've been very mean to? How are they going to get him back in? Well, they make a deal or or they promise him a, a substantial reward for his services. We will make you leader. Okay, If you help us, if you deliver us, you will become the leader of the people. Um, now, Jephthah doesn't trust them, would you? <laughs> so he, he makes this a very public thing. They have to pledge in front of God and in the community that this is for real. This isn't a backroom deal. I mean, if, if I defeat the Ammonites with God's help, I'm going to be your leader, and they say yes. So the first thing he does is very smart. Jephthah reaches out, uh, opens diplomatic channels 
uh, reaches out to the Ammonites through uh, messages and emissaries here uh, to see if this conflict could possibly be resolved without bloodshed. Give him credit there. So he sends the messengers to the enemies with this communique that basically details the history of Israel, details the claim that they have on these lands, and the fact that um, he and the people, they haven't done anything wrong to the Ammonites. But chapter 11, verse 28, the king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message that Jephthah sent him. Not interested. I mean, he thinks he's got the numbers. He's got a superior force. I don't need to negotiate with you, okay? Um, so Jephthah, seeing that negotiating is not the answer, that Ammon is committed to working this out, if you will, militarily, sorting this out with, with spears and swords, uh, Jephthah gathers men uh, and heads off to face the enemy with weapons. So here we go. This story has a couple of really interesting twists and turns in it as we go if you haven't read the story before. So Judges 11, starting in verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, these tribal lands, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And I'll say something here before we go any farther. So he is headed to battle. We are told the Spirit of the Lord is with him. Uh, and from what we've seen over and over again in the stories in the book of Judges, that's enough, right? I mean, if you've got the Spirit of the Lord with you, you don't need anything else. He's got more than enough to accomplish this mission, get the job done against the Ammonites. So I just want to be really clear. What comes next is Jephthah. This is 100% Jephthah. Uh, he's kind of taking things into his own hands here. So verse 30, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give me the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Remember that. So God did not require any of this. Nowhere in the book of Judges up to this point do we have a sort of pledge like this, a sort of vow that is made like this. Um, so we're left to kind of wonder what's going on here. Is Jephthah not totally sure that the Lord is with him and just kind of wanting to kind of seal the deal with this vow, you know, make a little deal with the Lord, uh, kind of wants to lock in that God is going to give him the victory? Maybe, I don't know. Um, is Jephthah trying to honor God, trying to lift God up and, and make sure that God gets recognized for this victory that's about to happen? Well, it's a private vow. So that's probably not is what is happening since it's just him talking to God, making this pledge. Um, anyway, verse 32. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of, of Mineth as far as abel Karimim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. Total victory. The enemy is devastated. He takes care of their towns, their centers of power, so they, for a long time, wouldn't even be able to think about rising up 
against Israel. And the people, so they've been delivered from this threat. God came through like God always comes through. And Jephthah now heads back home. Remember that vow. Uh, And something truly shocking happens. Verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Remember that pledge? All on his own. That promise that he made to God. Whatever comes out of the door of my house to greet me, I will offer to you. I will sacrifice as a burnt offering. Well, this is his only child, his daughter, who he loves very much. She comes running out tambourines. She's celebrating the victory that she's heard that her father has won. Now, what did he think would come out of his house? Did he think a, you know, a goat would come walking out of the, the gate? Or did he think a, you know, a dog, family pet maybe? Maybe a servant would come out? Uh, certainly didn't seem to have entertained the possibility that it would be his daughter. Verse 36. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said, give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. So here's the question that interpreters have been debating for a long, long time. Did this guy actually sacrifice his daughter? Did he put her to death? in order to fulfill this vow that he made to God. Well, you're going to find people lining up on both sides. There's certainly a side we would like to be able to line up on. We would like to be able to say, oh, no, 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 he didn't kill her. And so we look for things in the text that maybe point that direction. So there are three phrases amidst the heartbreak where she seems to be mourning the fact that she's never going to have children that she's never going to get married. Verse 37, because I will never marry. Verse 39, and she was a virgin. And that phrase is, is interpreted by some to mean okay, that he offered her to the Lord, not as a burnt offering, but rather gave her to, to service to the Lord. Like Hannah did with Samuel. Like, you go off to the tabernacle, and you're going to serve the, the Lord for the rest of your life. You're not going to get married. You're not going to have sexual relations. You're just going to belong to God. Like, that is the offering that Jephthah made. 
Uh, and to be honest, I'll say this, I th- the Hebrew in the story, and my Hebrew is not good, but, so I'm reading other scholars here. The Hebrew in the story uh, is sufficiently ambiguous that we don't know for sure exactly what he did to his daughter. And for sure, we would like to think, wouldn't we, that he didn't murder his daughter in some sort of ridiculous and rash vow to God. Um, not only would that have been morally reprehensible, um, whether he, he made a, a vow or not, uh, but it would have been a violation of God's very explicit commands against human sacrifice in the Old Testament. I think it's, I mean, maybe like five times in the Old Testament, this is condemned to kill a human as a sacrifice to God. Um, So did he sacrifice her, or perhaps did he sacrifice an animal as a burnt offering and then merely, like, dedicate her to a life of, of service to the Lord? I can't tell you with absolute certainty... I think he put her to death, and I'll tell you why. Um, First off, I would just say, what did you think when we were reading that text? What What seems to be the first natural reading of that text? It seems like... Um, he was going to offer whatever came out of the doors of his house as a burnt offering to the Lord. That's what it looks like. Um, Other explanations tend to come after a a second, third, fourth, hundredth reading, and you're like, I think I could come up with some other other reading that sounds a little bit better than that. Like, surely the biblical writer would have been more clear if he... Uh, if he hadn't sacrificed his daughter, surely the biblical writer would have been super clear about, hey, look, guys, he didn't kill his daughter. I mean, she went off to serve the, in, the, in the tabernacle. I mean, surely we would have had that. And I would, so, so just the first reading looks like that. And second, I would say an even stronger reason to believe that he put her to death would be just the reaction of everybody in this story. The, the horror, the mourning, the tears... The annual four-day remembrance of Jephthah's poor daughter. Uh, the reactions of uh, just severe emotional reactions by everybody in the story from her father to her friends. Um, everyone is shaken when they learn of this pledge. I mean, that pledge, it's, it's a shame that she wouldn't have had input in it. Uh, If he's dedicating her to this life of service to the Lord, she has no say in this. Um, But is it really that horrible? I mean, really. Like, mourning, national remembrance, four days a year for her. Um, Would would that really be something that that would break everyone's heart and cause all this mourning? I mean, other, let's put it this way, other lives were dedicated to God in the Bible, (laughs) and there weren't days of mourning built into the national calendar because of it. Like, why would Jewish women do this yearly lament for a girl who had merely been dedicated to the Lord? It just doesn't... It seems like a stretch. I would say it just seems like a stretch. And finally, I would say this. um, The interpretation that says, he didn't kill her, he just sent her off to kind of do this service for the rest of her life to the Lord, that interpretation doesn't surface until the Middle Ages. 
and when Jewish and Christian scholars kind of took that up, the Middle Ages, a pretty recent interpretation in the whole scheme of Judeo-Christian history. Um, so it appears to kind of be a novel way of reading the text that appears uh, more recent. Uh, again, we don't know for sure. We do know that whatever happened, it was a cause for nationwide mourning. A couple of observations as we kind of finish out tonight. And I'll be honest with you, this kind of story you're thinking, okay, what can we, what can we take away as believers? You know, what, what's the good lesson of this story? And so I do think there are some things, if we can kind of detach from that, whatever it was that happened there that everyone was mourning at the end of the story. Um, I think we can say what Jephthah proclaims publicly doesn't seem to match up with what he's doing privately. Like he says, verse 27, he says, God will deliver Israel. He officially recites all of the amazing things when he's sending that message to the, to the Ammonites. He's, all these amazing things that God has done throughout Israel's history. I mean, just a real statement of faith based on credible historic acts of God intervening on behalf of his people. Um, he says all of that very publicly, and then he does this kind of private thing, this kind of backhanded thing, this, this very rash vow. And whatever you think about the question of whether or not his daughter was put to death, nobody, Christian or Jewish, in scholarship circles is going to argue that his vow was a good thing, that it was appropriate, um, that it was God-honoring. Um, so we need to watch ourselves... I think as we reflect on this story, uh, to live in ways so that our public statements of faith match up with our private moments. And that's a challenge. I know that's, that's called, that's integrity there. When what you say publicly matches up with what you do privately, that's called integrity. And so I, it's, it's, it kind of, it's a heavy thing when I think about it because we, I would, I'd have to go back, John Scott, and think about all the songs we sang tonight. But we, we make a lot of public declarations that are pretty radical. I mean, have thine own way, Lord. Have o'er my being absolute sway. Pretty much any song that we sing, that public statement about the lordship of Jesus, uh, that he has this dominion and this sovereignty and that we are his servants. I mean, those are pretty radical pledges of faith that we say publicly on a weekly basis. So how does that match up with what I do tomorrow morning at work? I mean, is he, is he really Lord? Is he really having his way in my life? Is he really influencing the way I treat my employees or my boss or my coworkers or my neighbors or traffic on I-635? I mean, how... So you see what we're saying? We're saying um, we just need to watch this what we say publicly and how we live privately, those, those need to match up. Um, the other thing would be this. In this story, I think it's, it's, it is interesting. The one person in the story who does seem to have an unshakable faith is not Jephthah, but Jephthah's daughter, right? I mean, she has a, she has a remarkable faith. Um, she trusts God absolutely. Um, whatever it was that her father intended to do to her, and we're not 100% sure, she relentlessly insists that he follow through. 
If you promise that to God, do it. She trusts God. Um, she may not totally trust your father at this point. I don't know. That's, that's me interjecting my opinion into the story. But she trusts God. We have this in chapter 11, verse 36. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. So if she was sacrificed at the end of this story, I think her words kind of echo with words we've heard somewhere else. Remember Jesus, Garden of Gethsemane, you know, Lord, if this, if this cup can pass from me, but your will be done. Your will be done. Do to me, Father. That's what she says. It's what the Lord said at Gethsemane as well. Do to me, Father. And so ultimately what we're talking about is a life of surrender, of recognizing the lordship of God, not only with declarations and vows and songs that we sing, but with a lifestyle that matches that. Let's bow our heads and let's, let's pray to God about this. Father, this is heavy. When I think about all of the promises I've made to you, all of the things I've said to you in a prayer or in a song, all of the vows that I've made, I need a lot of grace. I need a lot of grace. The intentions of my heart don't always match up with the real choices that I make the rest of the week. I need the help of your spirit. We invite you into not only the big moments, but the little moments, the, the moments of choosing. We want to surrender those moments to you. We want to give our lives fully to you. We want to live with faith in your promises, in your love, in your son Jesus. Help us to do this. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's be standing. Let's worship together.